Hello and welcome to Mostly Weather. In this episode, we are discussing microclimates. Are they a thing? How big are they? Media myth or meteorological fact? I'm Jeff Norwood-Brown, and as ever, I'm joined by the Mostly Weather podcast team. Keeper of historic weather treasures, archivist Catherine Ross. Hello. Hello. Broadcaster, forecaster and powerboat racer Penny Tranter. Hello there, Jeff. And operational meteorologist, amateur naturalist and aspiring psychologist Helen Roberts. Hi, Jeff. Hello. Now... According to my favourite guide, the Observer's Handbook, microclimates are not mentioned. I do have a copy which dates from 1969, though, and therefore begs the question, how long have we had them? Is it a genuine phrase? Is this something that the media refers to that doesn't actually exist? So do we know when the phrase was coined? No. Well, I have it on good authority that the term microclimate first appeared in the 50s by a chap called Thomas Bedford Franklin in his Climate in Miniature study. And then since then, it's been adopted by, well, uh, the whole World Meteorological Organization, really. Do you know when we adopted microclimates as an official thing at the Met Office? I'm looking at a lot of blank faces here. Historically. <laughs> I think it was, uh, it was around the 70s, really, when these sort of terminology was taken on. There wasn't much study into them, really, but they were sort of known about, as we'll get on to. But what about a definition? Do we know how big a microclimate can be? That's a good question, Jeff. And I think the short answer is probably no, because I've been looking around at various definitions and they often seem to refer to a small scale area. But what we actually mean by that, I think, depends on the context, really. So in some ways, you could talk about a microclimate on a relatively large scale, even a almost a continental scale in some respects. Um, but more usually, we're probably thinking about of the order of parts of cities, parts of towns and smaller, right down to the really tiny scale of individual back gardens. And anybody who has any green fingers at all will be well aware of their own microclimate in their own garden, I would imagine. Yeah, it's interesting. It's like the term local, isn't it? You know, that gets used quite a lot and there's no strict definition for it. At what point does a microclimate become a climate? It really, I mean, like I said, there is no strict definition and there's a bit of a grey area between microclimates and just regional weather differences or regional climate differences. But it might be useful if we just have a think about some of the things that lead to different microclimates. So, Obviously, there's location. If we're thinking about the UK, there's latitude and longitude. Um, so it's probably no surprise to most people that generally the further north in the UK you are, generally the colder the climate will be, obviously, again, with regional differences. Then there's the altitude. So again, generally speaking, the higher up you are, the colder it tends to be. We've got distance from sea or, or even large bodies of water because water has a high specific heat capacity. So it tends to hold heat well, but it also has a, a long lagging effect behind the annual and daily variability of temperature on land. So that's something to bear in mind when we're thinking about microclimates. 
where you are in terms of whether you're urban or rural or somewhere in between, that can have a big impact, particularly on temperature, but also on precipitation as well, how much rainfall you're likely to receive. And then, yeah, right down to the tiny back garden scale. And we might come back to that later in the podcast, but there are some interesting reasons we might want to pick up on those very, very small scale microclimates. I tend to think of microclimates as an anomaly from the surrounding area. Penny, did you? Yeah, I would agree with you, Jeff and um, Helen. I think a city or a small area is known to have its own microclimate when its climate differs from the surrounding area. So I think for me, that is the main kind of meaning or definition of microclimate. And as Helen has said, the reasons for a microclimate could be topographic and natural, you know, like slopes or hills. As Helen has also said about water, whether it's a lake, whether it's the sea that cools the air, or it can also be man-made, like ground covered in concrete, like we see in large towns and cities, because, you know, those kind of materials absorb the sun's energy in a different way from the land um, and also radiate heat back into the air, particularly at night. So, yeah, I would say it's more about when the climate of a small area or a city differs from its surrounding area. I remember always being disappointed, actually, um, when I grew up. I grew up on a place called the Wirral Peninsula, which is in Merseyside. And whenever there was a forecast of snow, If the snow was coming in from the southwest, we were sheltered by the Snowdonia range. If it was coming in from the east, we were sheltered by the Pennines. If it was coming in from the north, the Lake District there. So it had to be specifically northeast, the origin of the uh, snow showers for us to get. And I remember seeing the whole country would grind to a halt, except the Wirral, which would be fine. And so um, that's probably why I never owned a sledge. (laughs) There's a similar joke amongst uh, forecasters in our headquarters in Exeter, actually, about what we refer to as the Exeter Shield. So, yeah, similarly, whenever there's any exciting weather going on, it might be thunderstorms or snow, the Exeter Shield goes up. But thinking from a more scientific perspective, we do have two areas of high ground nearby. We've got Dartmoor and we've got Exmoor, and they do provide quite a lot of shelter. I used to actually commute regularly between Exeter and Plymouth and even that relatively short distance of what is it around 40 miles or so uh, you could see noticeable changes in the weather and also actually the climate on a longer scale with Plymouth being generally much wetter. Because generally our weather comes in uh, from the southwest isn't it and uh, and Plymouth is right at the southwest of the UK. Um, So geography obviously plays a part in this Catherine, did you want to talk about the Isle of Wight and its microclimates? Yeah, we've talked about geography, but underpinning geography is geology. And you find that particularly on the Isle of Wight. So we've got kind of a nice chalk band running kind of down the south, down the middle, chalk and green sands. That's fairly strong rock, really. And then to the south of it in particular, also to the north, you've got clays. But you know, I'm, I wanted to talk about the south of the Isle of Wight, where you've got sands and softer rocks. And they have basically just slipped away from part of the south coast of the Isle of Wight over time. They've created an area called the Undercliff. The Undercliff's actually currently the largest urban landslide complex in Northern Europe. Um, It's been slipping for thousands of years and it's still going. Um, 
So there's basically kind of two very active areas of landslip and bits of it fall away every year one way or another. And then in the middle, there's a more stable area and that's where you find a place called Ventnor. And it's now well known for its botanical gardens. And the fact that you've got this sort of low-lying slumped land, nicely protected now by a nice chalk cliff behind it, um, means that actually Ventnor and the whole undercliff has got a climate that's on average five degrees warmer than the UK mainland. Really? Which way is this facing? Um, the, so it's all facing south. All facing um, south. Yeah. So the chalk cliffs protect it from all the northerlies, anything chilly, any frosts, anything like that. And it's nice and low lying. So it's got a degree of warming from the sea as well and basically points so straight this is, south. This is right <laughs> at the uh, bottom of uh, the UK, isn't it? Uh, out into the channel. Yeah, uh, next the, stop, France. Yeah, the English Channel. And it's, uh, I don't know, it, it, does the chalk help at all? Do you think it reflects the heat? I suspect it helps a bit. Its main role is just in protecting the land beneath it from anything that yeah. comes remotely out of the north. The botanical gardens have plants from Australia and the Caribbean growing outside year round quite happily without needing any you know, additional gardening support. But historically, there's another kind of interesting point there, which is sort of about microclimates and health. And that's what I really wanted to kind of mention, because the botanical gardens are on the site of what was the Royal National Hospital for Diseases of the chest and essentially it was a hospital for patients with tuberculosis so by the time we got to about the 60s they were able to treat tuberculosis with antibiotics but before then there was no medical cure as such the only thing you could do was basically give patients plenty of fresh air and they realised that this, you know, this undercliff area where it was warmer, much more sheltered environment, they could build a hospital, all the rooms facing south, all the windows open all the time. And the patients oh. could benefit from fresh air kind of year round because it was just that bit warmer. So that little bit more pleasant for them. That was the theory, wasn't it, at the time? That yeah. I mean, I remember, I can't remember the name of the author who went away to the Caribbean to basically live there because uh, he had tuberculosis, as you say. And that was what his doctor recommended. But of course, if you can't afford to go and live in the Caribbean, then the Isle of Wight is even better, I would say. <laughs> the Isle of Wight is certainly a, a, a decent option. Yeah, and there was a 130-room hospital there from 1869 to 1964. And it was, well, as successful as, as you could be without, if you like, real medical treatment for something like that. But it was just kind of, you know, a nice little example of how a microclimate actually can be used for its health benefits. And of course, until not long ago, we would have Met Office reports coming in from what we called the health resorts. That was places like Bournemouth and Ventnor is still sending in observations out of interest. Um, you know, and a lot but, of them are the kind of place people went to take the sea air and go for a swim. And <laughs> I remember looking at the sunshine hours and that was um, <laughs> the sunshine hour reports used to come in. How long the sun had been shining in any particular resort and uh, you had to take them. Yeah, they, they were, you were offered. <laughs> how can I put this delicately? There was a lot of competition uh, for the various places to say they had the sunniest place in the country. Very so you had definitely. to be, yeah, you had to be very careful uh, to get the correct data. Yeah. Yes. So uh, I'm just thinking about you referenced uh, botanical gardens there, and this was a, a thing, wasn't it, in the 17, 1700s, 
hundreds that people became absolutely uh, fanatical about collecting plants from all over the world. And I'm thinking of, uh, you know, there's, there's again on the Wirral, there's a, a place called Ness Gardens that grew up and is now part of uh, Liverpool University. And that was just because of one collector decided he wanted to go and collect plants. And because of the uh, unique climate that uh, the Wirral has, as I mentioned before, Ness Gardens is still thriving to this day. And, and nearer to Exeter as well, we have the uh, Lost Gardens of Heligan. Oh, I uh, love which, those. I've never been actually, but I love the sound of it. I mean, I expect oh, the, pi- dark- the pineapple pit is great. The thing is, is it? <laughs> yes. right? I, I was expecting dinosaurs and things to to be found there, but uh, it is mainly plants. And and this is on Cornwall again, which is a peninsula that sticks basically out into the Gulf Stream, which keeps the UK climate warmer than it should be at the latitude we are. And again, it's got the most outrageous plants for the UK climate. We've got you know tropical ferns, and as you say, uh, Catherine. Uh, pineapples and and I think this sort of links into what I was going to talk about which is um, walled gardens and man-made microclimates and uh, um, so if you go to any of the um, stately homes or country houses around the UK, mainly owned by the National Trust, um, they quite often have a walled garden. And the point of the wall surrounding the garden uh, is not just to protect it from, say, like bunny rabbits and things like that, but it actually alters the climatology of the garden itself so that you've got the walls will uh, protect it from uh, strong winds and also mitigate frost to some extent by absorbing heat during the day and then you know radiating that out so uh, it doesn't especially up against the wall it doesn't get quite as cold as the surrounding area one of my favorite places is in Devon and it's a walled garden at a house called Knight's Haze and the garden itself is built on quite a steep south-facing slope you know it was there to provide food for Knight's Haze itself and it's incredible because it is built on a slope but into the lowest wall the wall at the bottom of the hill if you like they have frost gates and the idea behind the frost gate is overnight the cold air would pool against the lower wall and to stop a build-up of frost they would open the gates at the bottom and let the cold air out and it works very very effectively um, and apparently this happens in wall gardens all around the country where there's a slope they can open the gate at the bottom and let the frost out I mean obviously keeping an eye out for rabbits coming in um, but uh, they realised that the, the properties of these walls that were being heated by the sun during the day and then radiating the heat back out overnight they could actually influence that as well. So they started, I'm thinking that there's, uh, there's uh, Croxteth Hall up in the northwest of England, actually has a, a walled garden and the walls are hollow because what they used to do is they would light fires and use the hollow in the wall as a flue to, to pump hot air around it to keep the walls warm and therefore protect the plants um, during the day. So that was used to be just fires. Then, of course, they introduced boilers and uh, pipelines. And then, you know, moving forward to a few years ago, an old clay pit in, uh, again, in Cornwall, they started building in 1998 a thing called the Eden Project, which is, a, well, I can't really describe it as a massive walled garden, but it's two biodomes, uh, essentially. Uh, one of them recreates the Mediterranean climate uh, and can grow all sorts of um, Mediterranean plants 
in that, but they've also got a rainforest biome and they can keep regulate the humidity and the temperature just by opening the windows at the top. It's absolutely fantastic. If you ever get a chance to go down there, if you haven't been already, it's uh, fantastic. Oh, I love the Eden product. Just um, when you were talking about the fires in the walls there, Jeff, you reminded me of, um, it might be slightly off topic, but I, I'm sure I remember my granddad talking about when there was, I used to work at RAF St Morgan as a forecaster. And back in the Second World War, he said that when there was fog, which is not unusual at all at St Morgan, again, due to the microclimate and the direction it faces on the north coast there, that they would light big sort of beacons, big fire beacons along the runway yeah. to try and disperse the fog. That's it. I mean, I, I worked at St Morgan as well. It can get to a situation where the fog comes up the cliff off the sea and then dissipates just at the end of the runway. So as the observer, you're constantly watching for this fog to come across the runway and it never quite does it. So this is um, this is one of the problems with building airfields. Um, they obviously need a very open, flat area of land to be built on. Normally, especially in World War II, a lot of them were uh, just grass runways. If there was a chance there was going to be fog, a big open uh, patch of flat grassland uh, would be very susceptible to a thing called radiation fog, where the heat from the land uh, radiates back into the sky overnight, cools the um, uh, the air above the land and, and, and can produce fog. This is a huge problem, to, especially to returning aircraft uh, who'd uh, maybe been off to fight in Europe and coming back, they couldn't land. So they came up with a, a thing called FIDO which was the Fog Investigation and Dispersal Operation, which is one of those acronyms you think they came up with the word first and then tried to crowbar the, the rest of it into it. And these were just essentially massive pipes that ran down each side of the runway through which they sent thousands of gallons of fuel, uh, which they then lit. And this would create a local climate of a little bit hotter air which would disperse the fog. And they didn't do it on every runway, but they did it on enough so that if you were coming in uh, from Europe, there was at least one diversion airport, and then they would just wait for the fog to go and you could return to your normal base. But um, they used to use apparently 60,000 gallons of fuel per hour just to uh, try and uh, disperse the fog. And apparently it was very effective. Uh, it would clear that particular runway, but you've got to remember that uh, fog forms on tiny soot particles. So downwind of the fog, you've now introduced a load of particles from the burning fuel. So uh, it was quite um, quite often happened that they would have pea supers uh, just downwind from the local airfield. But the oh. thing was, they got the planes back, and I mean they wouldn't do it in in you know when uh, in peacetime because it's just not effective. Yeah, we've got some uh, some pictures actually of, of sort of FIDO in operation in the archive, you know, in these great big burning lines of, of, of runways. But it was, as Jeff says, it was a, it was an awful lot of fuel, but it was actually it was also incredibly expensive, and the fuel was needed to kind of fuel the aeroplanes as well as to burn the runways. Um, and so one of the things it was one of the reasons why they they sort of phased it out or found other solutions during the course of the war was it just used so much fuel it wasn't really a viable option. There's a particular video on uh, I saw on the, the internet and it was, um, you know, this is where we, uh, we, you know, they were showing the pipelines and that and they said, this is where, because we, we need vast amounts of fuel, this is where we store it. And there was these huge tanks right next to the runway full of fuel. And you think, really? <laughs> 
if you wanted to take out someone's airfield, that's what you'd aim for, wouldn't it? You know, so uh, so yeah, I'm not sure how they they managed to keep it quiet really from uh, anyone wishing to uh, attack us. But I mean, that brings me on to things like I was saying about the the, the fuel giving out smoke particles and creating uh, smog, which we've touched on in other episodes as well. Right. And this, uh, I don't know, that sort of leads into um, yeah, urban heat islands, uh, Penny. It's a well-known phenomenon, actually, for many large towns, cities, you know, not only in the UK, but across the world. And it's not actually to do with anything natural. It's due to human activities. So, um, you know, this is quite an interesting one when you consider climate change and how may the climates of large towns and cities continue to change as we go through the next decades. So what you find with the Urban Heat Island Effect, or UHI, is its acronym, what it's fondly known as. The temperature difference is usually larger at night than during the day. And also it's most noticeable in summer and winter. But the biggest difference in terms of seasons is um, during the winter. So if I take the day versus night first, during the day, you've got lots of buildings absorbing, you know, lots of heat from the sun. But as the, the temperature rises from those buildings, then you see, you know, air rising and you start to see convective air currents developing. And so you're getting a mixing of the atmosphere. So that is, you know, keeping temperatures similar or perhaps a little bit lower than surrounding rural areas. For example, Barcelona is a, just a smidge of a degree lower during the day, but at night is nearly three degrees Celsius higher during the night. And the reason for that is that during the night, particularly when we have clear skies and light winds and particularly under high pressure, and we may see an inversion forming and an inversion is where the temperature increases with height rather than decreases with height. What happens is that all those buildings are still giving off heat through the night and that heat gets trapped below the inversion. So consequently, you don't see the temperature at night falling as much as it would do in sort of surrounding rural areas. So. Um, and this actually, Penny, goes back to Catherine's point earlier about um, how health can be impacted by weather, doesn't it? For example, I, I think there's some evidence to show that it's not necessarily the daytime maxima that can be particularly negative to people's mm. health, although that they can be. But it's when it's prolonged combined with temperatures not dropping at night. So there's no chance for the body to have that recovery during the nighttime period and cool down at all so I think this is something that that climate change is just going to exacerbate and living in cities is going to become really potentially very uncomfortable for some during the summer months. Uh, as you say it's going to have a large impact on health um, the number of tropical nights where temperatures don't fall below 20 celsius is increasing in the UK and, and other parts of the world but there's another point um, regarding health in large towns and cities, and that is poor air quality, because obviously you're seeing more pollutants put into the air across the urban environment, you know, from vehicles and industry and transport infrastructure. And again, if they're getting caught under that inversion, 
then they're obviously going to have an impact on, on people's health, particularly those suffering from heart and, and lung conditions. It's interesting with sort of talking about you know, the urban heat island and um, you know, Jeff, you were saying earlier that you know, the term microclimate wasn't was, wasn't coined until the 50s, but it's certainly something that historically people were were aware of um, and you know, were oh, yeah, understanding. Yeah. Um, and actually, the urban heat island was probably one of the probably one of the first that was kind of identified scientifically. It was actually identified by Luke Howard. Now he's better known to us as the uh, the man who named the clouds. So he named our cumulus and cirrus and cumulonimbus clouds. Um, but he also um, he was he was a chemist living in London, and one of the things that he was interested in was temperature. Um, and so he compared the temperatures between London and surrounding rural areas and noticed that it was particularly warmer at night. Now he put it down to all the fires in everybody's homes. But actually, you know, his book Climate of London was published in 1833. So what you're really seeing there is the rise of industrialization and the start of, of people moving to cities and cities actually growing into the kind of the huge urban spaces that, that we have today. So it, you know, sort of, it goes back a long way, pretty much into industrialization. It's interesting, isn't it, that a walled garden relies on that, that heating effect uh, uh, to be beneficial. And yet the same effect is, is quite detrimental in towns and cities. Something we haven't talked about very much yet is winds. So we've talked about temperature a lot and a little bit about precipitation, but obviously the winds can vary depending on microclimates. The sea breeze is a is an obvious one and of course many of us will be familiar even if we're not sure if the reason why that often beaches will be a, a nice place to cool down on a very very hot summer day. Um, but also thinking even more locally than that we're we're not potentially very far away from having things like drone deliveries you know you could have you could order your pizza and have it delivered by a drone and they're going to be very responsive to wind speed and direction so we're really going to have to understand the wind profile on those very very small levels which are impacted by all sorts of things and not least going back to the urban effect with all these tall buildings around um, they create their own types of turbulence and what we call eddies and vortices so it's a, it's a really complex thing to even understand in terms of observations let alone predicting it in terms of a forecast. Yeah, I mean, Penny mentioned, you know, the fact that they can create thermals, you know, rising air currents. And of course, if you get a thermal, the air rises, but air has got to come in underneath uh, to replace that. But you also have a funneling effect as well with a lot of cities. And um, especially in Liverpool, when I used to work in Liverpool, there was a couple of streets there on a windy day. I, I, I'm not joking. People were hanging onto lampposts because the, yeah. so down from, uh, I think, Castle Street down towards the Liver buildings, um, you, you, you would start walking and it's it's downhill towards the River Mersey and if you started <laughs> you would start walking and then if you got into a bit of a trot there was there was no coming back from it you would just be blown down the street and and at the bottom is a set of traffic lights and literally people in suits were just hanging onto the lampposts um, just trying to protect themselves from the winds it's incredible. It's funny because I experienced that when I was in Liverpool but I didn't know what was going on so I now understand why I got blown down that street. So um, yeah so uh, yeah the chap that was hanging sideways off a lamppost was probably me Catherine uh, all those <laughs> years ago. Been. Yes <laughs> and of course you've got you know Chicago's famously known as the Windy City another very you know, notorious windy microclimate because of the grid system there um, and the wind tunnels so 
Yeah, it's definitely yeah. not just the UK. And, and also, um, you know, just uh, looking at other cities around the world, Sydney and Australia, during the summer, uh, there's a huge difference in temperature between the coastal area of the city and also the inland suburbs. So we can see in extreme occasions that the, the coastal part of the city could have a temperature, say, you know, 24 Celsius or whatever. But in a suburb up to 19 miles inland, it could be as high as 36 Celsius. So you've got a 12 degrees difference there. And the main reason for that is that the sea breezes that blow in off the sea don't penetrate that far inland. So you can see that um, as well as there being a, a lot of temperature difference in a sort of short space of um, distance, you're also going to have a, a huge difference in the wind direction and also the wind speed and also the comfortableness <laughs> for uh, you know people in Sydney. So uh, to bring this to a conclusion then, um, we haven't really defined microclimates, have we, other than they are an area smaller than a climate. Uh, there's no real sort of definition as yet, but maybe one will uh, be coming very soon, you know, because uh, it feels like this is quite a new thing to explore. It hasn't been around that long scientifically. So yeah, maybe a, an actual definition will uh, be coming along soon. But it is good to know that we have invented the word comfortableness on this <laughs> uh, podcast, thanks to, uh, to Penny. So that's it for this Mostly Weather episode. Uh, can I just thank my panellists, Helen Roberts? Thank you. Penny Dranter. Thank you very much. And Catherine Ross. Thank you. The Mostly Weather podcast is produced by Claire Nazir. Editor is Adrian Holloway. And I'm Jeff Norwood-Brown. Do join us again next time as we delve into the weird and wonderful world of the weather. Mm-hmm.